Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, an American airstrike kills a top Iranian commander and Iran retaliates. Yet the market moves on with stocks again touching record highs. Is this the right reaction or is there reason to worry investors are potentially a bit too comfortable? And we'll resume our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. We had a couple of weeks off of the crazy things there, Sarah. I don't know if our listeners are, will forgive us for that, but uh, it's back. I'll say some listeners that I do know personally, uh, I got some nasty messages. They were a little bit upset that we didn't did have really? uh, the craziest thing crazy in the thing? last couple episodes. So we better all have uh, some pretty good ones to make up for it this time. All right. I got a good one. I got a good one. Okay, good. Uh, I don't know about you. Oh, I have a good one. It might be a bit obvious, but it's a good one. I think we'll all get a laugh out of it. Well, hopefully our guests uh, came prepared for the craziest thing, but we'll talk about the real market stuff first. Uh, And joining us first time on the show, very happy to have him here, John Mackay, Senior Market Strategist at Schroeder's. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Good to be here. Good to be here, Sarah. And returning to the show, uh, sort of the hidden hand of the What Goes Up podcast, a lot of our crazy things actually are filtered through to us by our chief crazy thing correspondent, uh, Vildana Hyrick, who's actually a, a Bloomberg cross-asset reporter and connoisseur of crazy things. Vildana, I think it's because you cover Bitcoin that you have the insight on all the true crazy market stories. Is that true? Yes, I think so. And if I can go on and say that I'd actually prefer to have that title instead of my real <laughs> title, that would be great. I think, right. I think we should make it official. Vildana Hyrick, Chief Crazy Things Correspondent. Right. It flows. I it. It's, it works well. Careful what you wish for, you know. I mean, PR <laughs> pitches can be annoying enough if you're Crazy Things Correspondent. They, they could be off the charts. <laughs> but, John, let's start with you. I mean, um, this, this tremendous sort of risk-on rally of 2019 is just flowed right through into 2020, despite all the tweets about World War III that I've been reading. What's your take? I mean, obviously, geopolitics often can cause uh, sort of knee-jerk reactions in markets that kind of fade almost instantly. Uh, This, to me, seems like it has the potential to linger for a little while. Is this a a vol event? You know, is this a volatility-inducing event, uh, what's going on between the U.S. and Iran? Is You know, how long do you sort of see this lingering in the headlines for market uh, yeah. people. So who am I to tell the markets what to do? But it should be, right? Yeah. You've got um, Iran, you've got the U.S. going head to head. I mean, the killing of a top three, top four person in the country, depending on who you read and who you believe, um, and someone who had been built up over the years as sort of a hero within that country, uh, resisting sort of the West, trying to get the U.S. out of the Middle East in general, um, and resisting Sunni powers over there as well. And the markets sell off, and then you have the response on Tuesday night. 
and markets sell off. And then sort of, as you said, everything goes back to who cares. And I'd be very surprised if this is the end of it. I'm no Middle East expert by any means, but it's just hard to believe that that's the end of the sort of tit to tat and back and forth. And if you look back at past geopolitical events, it tends to be the market sort of taking things into account as uncertainty rises and responding like you would think, risk assets selling off and safe havens rallying. And then as peak uncertainty um, comes about, everything reverses. And I don't think we're at peak uncertainty quite yet. So if this actually isn't the end of it, say we look at what actually did happen over the past couple of weeks, how different markets reacted. You had a very strong rally in gold above $1,600 a troy ounce at one point. You also had a pretty strong rally in bonds at one point, the Japanese yen. Say you do believe that this is going to flare up again. This is going to come back. What is actually the right way to go about hedging an event like this, or at least trying to protect against some losses that might come from risk assets? Sure. So very hard to determine, right? It's like when people ask me the question, how do you how do you discount a political action or an right. event, right? How, how many of us were wrong about how Brexit would play out over the past three years? And in hindsight, it's easy to say we should have known that it would take that long to get to a point where they actually came into an agreement, still not a final agreement with the European Commission, but getting getting this far along in the process. So I think you've got to go back to the fundamentals, right? What are you getting paid for in terms of risk in the market? And it's very hard at this point versus where we were at this time last year to find an asset class where you're like, oh, it's worth taking on that risk mm-hmm. given still uncertainty over trade, still uncertainty with Brexit, the Iran-US conflict potentially you know, evolving into something more serious. So what we've been doing is saying that people should still consider duration. Uh, we think rates may rise a little bit this year if we get a cyclical rebound, but it's going to be constrained. And you still want to go for those markets where you're getting at least a better bang for your buck, right? So we think there's uh, value in emerging markets, there's value in Europe, there's value within value. Um, sectors within the market. Um, and there's not a lot of value in other sectors like high yield bonds, uh, U.S. growth, sort of growth at any price um, parts of the market. So it doesn't mean you forgo it all. Um, I mean, this year alone, we're only six or seven days into it, but you've obviously seen those parts of the market do okay. And there's no reason for them to sell off unless things escalate significantly between the U.S. and Iran or some other event comes across. But um, you, want, you want to start shifting. And that's the way I would think about the market is not trying to determine whether or not things are going to get significantly serious today, tomorrow, or next week between the U.S. and Iran, but being aware that they could, and it's likely, more likely than not, that they will um, escalate to some degree, and so shifting your portfolio a little bit. One of the uh, things I read in one of your notes that sort of uh, stuck with me is you did say this situation, I mean, uncertainty is one thing, and and that has its own effect on markets. I think you did write that there is the potential to actually affect the fundamental picture uh, with this tension. I mean, obviously, oil and oil price shock is the the most obvious one. Are there other ways that the fundamental picture could be affected? I mean, uh, Iran is somewhat sort of quarantined uh, economically from the rest of the world, but how could this sort of contagion spread to to other markets? So, uh, look... Oil is the most obvious one. It's the easiest one to sort of discount, right? A supply-driven shock to oil prices up to 80 bucks, maybe 85 bucks, somewhere in that area, will constrain demand. It'll constrain CapEx. Oil importing countries, a lot throughout Asia, obviously the U.S. is relatively oil independent these days, but Europe as well will struggle in that scenario, especially given expectations for a rebound this year. So, you know, what is the economic knock-on effect? It sort of depends how long oil stays at those prices. It depends how significantly higher it moves from these levels, but I think that's the most obvious knock-on effect. We've gone through a full year of uncertainty, right? 
trade war with China. When's it going to be resolved? We're going to reach a deal. We're not going to reach a deal. Um, they've got the votes for Brexit. They don't have the votes for Brexit. And on and on and on. Um, and now you just add another element to it. So far, we're only five, six business days or seven business days into this year so far. So far, it appears like Iran-US is not going to be a big issue, but I'd be very surprised if it didn't come back to haunt us at some point. Vildan, I'm wondering what the uh, investors you talk to uh, say about this. I, I know what the Bitcoin people say. They probably <laughs> say buy Bitcoin uh, b- because of this, but... Because they hodl. <laughs> hodl. They do say that. It, and a lot of people have been making the argument that it's a safe haven asset, which is a tricky argument to Also, make. just so you know, hodl is hold on for dear life. It's an acronym that's actually used in the in the community. What? It is. Wait, though. Is I that thought sort it was of, a misspelling. Right. Is, is that a no. back... No. Is that a, that's hold a back, on for dear that's life. That's a backfitted acronym there, I think. I, I 100% agree with you there, Mike. someone who made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> hold on for dear life. <laughs> but are are the you know the the let's say the non crypto uh, investors you talk to uh, sounding a similar message to John? You know what is kind of the consensus, the the zeitgeist out there? The consensus for the most part has been that investors are just simply looking at fundamentals. They're looking forward to the fourth quarter earnings season. They're looking at what Fed speakers are saying for. For now, they're saying, let's just wait and see how this actually plays out. It does seem like things have calmed down a bit after President Trump made some announcements saying that Iran seems to be standing down. So instead, they're focusing on things that they can actually analyze and look at instead of worrying about potentially how this could escalate. So Vildana mentioned the fundamentals, uh, and a lot of people do say, okay, well, we're going to get a rebound in economic growth. As we start to get into the earnings season, we're going to see that we're going to get positive profit growth in 2020. Uh, But something that I have started to hear more worries about is actually the valuation picture. Granted, you have extremely low interest rates, but now if you look at a measure of the forward P.E. ratio on the S&P, we're about highs that match the highs of the cycle. Can we continue to stay at this point, especially should earnings not come in where they're expected right now, if interest rates at least remain low? I would be shocked if we stayed in yeah. at these levels, If interest, even if interest rates may remain below, if we don't get the earnings coming through. So you could make the argument with low interest rates, if we get what consensus is pricing in is roughly 9% earnings growth this year. That number's come down a little bit over the last three months or so. Uh, we would we think that would be a struggle for companies to generate that kind of earnings this year. We could be surprised at the upside, but it'll, it plays out almost every single year. Analysts project a number that the market yeah. never beats. Right. Um, there might be an exception in there somewhere, yeah. so come back and get me if there is, but it's very unlikely. So, and it's know, all based on far out later in the year. Mm-hmm. Correct. That. A rebound in the second half of this year. Fourth be- quarter right now, we're yeah. seeing estimates for 14% earnings growth. I right. mean, quite the turnaround from what we saw in 2019. 100%. So, I would be surprised if you don't get some multiple contraction this year. We all know last year was all about multiple expansion, and rightly so. We were trading at roughly 14 times at the beginning of the year. Um, we got no earnings growth, right? So it was all a um, a rebound in expectations of it, perhaps a cyclical rebound this year and maybe some degree of certainty around some of the issues that had plagued the market last year. Um, but you don't get that benefit this year, right? You had the Fed cutting rates three times last year. The Fed's on hold now. Granted, they're doing a lot of pushing a lot of liquidity, and we can discuss that as another topic into the market and maybe that non-QE or QE in air quotes. Um, <laughs> whatever you, you want know, to call it. Whatever. We're on a podcast. No one can see what I'm doing with my hands. But um, nonetheless, maybe that is um, something that we need to take into account as dovish policy by the Fed. But they're not going to do that forever either. So what's the tailwind you have to push the market 
maintain the market at current levels or push it higher. And it's really, really hard to find one. Yeah, it's such a raging debate whether or not it's QE or not QE. I mean, bottom line is you have the the Fed's bought, what, almost half a trillion dollars worth of of Mm -hmm. T-bills. Exactly. But one thing I would uh, sort of uh, question you on is, you know, they're not going to do that forever. I have a feeling they are. I've like, you know, this this supply of treasuries is not going anywhere, right? I mean, we've got these massive deficits for as as far as the eye can see. Are they sort of caught in a trap of this this repo uh, type of situation? So I what I struggle with, I agree with you in the sense that if they pull back, right, the minute the Fed says we're going to start reducing um, the activity in the repo market. We're going to remove some of these facilities. Look at if you if you really want an eyebrow raiser, take a look at the balance sheet graph, which basically was declining until the middle of last year, bottomed around three point six trillion. Now is back over four trillion dollars. Um, so if they continue going down this path, where does it end? Right, right. It's got to end at some point. They've got to wean the market off it, and I think they're going to try and do that when they think that the market is able to withstand a reduction in that liquidity. But I think because I think that liquidity was a huge piece of the rally last year. Right. And, you know, obviously you try to think, well, what could go wrong with all this liquidity being added? Uh, You know, obviously the Econ 101 argument would be, well, it's going to trigger inflation. Uh, You know, that's going to sort of force the Fed's hand. But boy, that people have been saying that for years about all of this. Um, Is this the time where, where that could really happen? I, I highly doubt it. We just haven't seen it yet. The you know, I've had some people say to me, well, the way they're measuring inflation is completely wrong, mm-hmm. right? There is inflation in healthcare, there's inflation in education. Sure, there's deflation in the car I buy today. I get a lot more bang for my buck, my phone, my fridge, um, things like that. But um, asset, asset prices. <laughs> yeah, right, asset prices coming down. But there is no, so far, we haven't seen real labor inflation. We've seen some, but I wouldn't call it scary inflation mm-hmm. enough to push rates significantly higher. So I'd be very surprised if all of a sudden this year, this was the year that it happened, especially given the growth rates that we're projecting around the world, which are roughly 2.6, 2.7% for global growth, obviously better in EM than DM, but it's not like we're not growing gangbusters this year. So inflation, not so much a concern with yeah. the liquidity being pumped into the system, but what about the idea of people being pushed out further on the risk spectrum? So that gets back to the discussion we were just having about can the market move higher? And that's why I struggle to see it moving higher, right? Um, it's sort of a, you've got nowhere else to go right now. So there's no asset class out there on the equity side that's screamingly cheap. There are asset classes that are relatively cheaper than others. EM is cheap to DM. Europe is cheap to the US. But they're all either at best long-term, at their long-term average forward PEs, um, maybe slightly richer than that, where the US is much richer than that. So I think it's more about money moving around the market a little bit and that liquidity probably causing capital flows into areas that have been left behind. And then at some point, the Fed pulls back and everything pulls back. It's just how high are you when they stop pulling back? Right. So we had Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo on our most recent episode, and he said that he believes that in the first half of the year, we'll likely get a correction and it could be driven by the Fed finally saying, you know what, we can't continue to keep growing our balance sheet. I want to get your sense, though. Is there any way to actually measure or get a sense of how much balance sheet growth actually affects the stock market. I've seen a couple statistics being thrown around like, oh, for every percentage point that the balance sheet's gone up, uh, the S&P has gone up 1%. And then other people shoot back and say, hey, look, the sample size is so small. It really hasn't been that long yet. Um, But is there a way to get an idea of how this liquidity is actually getting put into the stock market? So you're asking the wrong person for that one. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be, uh, you know, I'd be giving you a wild guess. Yeah. But I think there's a there's a clear correlation between 
the Fed saying they're going to do something dovish, so the signaling effect, and then the actual effect of putting those policies into place mm-hmm. with a reaction in equity markets moving higher. So I don't know what the right you know uh, relationship between percentage increase in the balance sheet yeah. is or the number of times they cut rates, but it's a clear effect on asset prices. Yeah. And at some point, we're going to have to pay the price for that. And I'm not suggesting by any means that means we go through a bear market, <laughs> but a 5 10 15% correction um, at some point over the next year or so is certainly a reasonable po- possibility. Just the fungible nature of money. You know, yeah. they're, they're, they're adding X billion in. It's, you know, it's X billion somewhere. somewhere else. Is <laughs> exactly. It has to, you know, money, someone once said this to me, and it's a great analogy, um, is it's like water, right? Um, if you've ever seen water, a wave crash on the beach, it moves up and it actually goes much further than you ever think. You see that reflected in the sand. Um, and that's exactly what's happening with the Fed and they're and, you know, buying treasury bills that pushes people out the risk spectrum. And as long as there's nothing major going wrong with either the economy or geopolitics or you know, some major event in the market, there's no reason for the equities to stop going up. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, Vildana, I want to bring you in here. You know, Sarah, I asked Vildana what she wanted to talk to on the podcast, and you know what she said? She said, none of your business. <laughs> um, I got to test her. I thought you were trying to get my craziest thing out of me so no, that you could steal it. I going to steal her craziest thing. Why would I do that, Vildana? Come on. But I, there's one story you had uh, that I know you worked on. Uh, Vildana was the trooper here throughout the holidays when the rest of us were, were uh, eating and drinking and being merry and Vildana was doing all the work. Um, and one story you worked on that caught my attention was all of the flows going into sort of very risky ETFs, uh, le- levered up ETFs. Talk, talk a little bit about what that, you know, what are some of the products that you saw um, a lot of money pouring into at the start of the year? Um, because this, I think, kind of gets to the idea of the either complacency or euphoria in the market. It does get into that idea because as the Iran tensions were escalating over the past couple of days, we actually saw money coming into an industrials ETF, for example, some money flowing into energy. So people were sort of positioning, trying to take advantage of any escalations. But on the other hand, this is where the complacency part comes in. We actually saw money come out of GLD, which is the largest gold ETF. So not so much. You would think that people would go into that if as a safe haven asset, and we actually saw money coming out. Mm. And I'll, I'll say as it relates to leveraged funds, so Sundial Research uh, 
you can also call him sentiment trader, Jason Goatford over there. He tracks money going into leveraged ETFs. He has his own index and, well, leveraged long products versus leveraged short products. And they found that at the end of 2019, also into this year, we've seen flows into leveraged long products absolutely surging. And then flows for leveraged short products are coming out of the market. At the same time, you can point to statistics like short interest on SPY uh, completely evaporating. John, when you see statistics like this or you see behaviors like this, people rushing for leveraged products to go long the market um, after a stellar year like 2019, does that worry you yet? Uh, What does that tell you? So it worries me, but I still... So I think this is sort of a either an internal debate you're having with yourself or you've had with colleagues or clients or anyone that sort of follows the market is um, we're headed for something disastrous because of Fed policy, ECB policy, Bank of Japan policy. You're seeing a lot of leverage um, pile up within corporations. And our view is that at some point, well, you'll have a price to pay there. Um, but sentiment as measured by things like short interest on the SPY or you know these leveraged products, is actually still pretty poor, right? People are still so scarred from 2008. Um, this has been one of the most unloved, and I'm not the first person to say this, but one of the most unloved bull markets we've ever seen, despite the fact that the returns have been spectacular, that I feel like any time you get a sell-off, 5%, 10%, 15%, the thought in the back of everyone's head is, well, well we've got the Fed at our back. They'll come in, they'll save us. So the ECB will do something. It'll be some coordinated response. It's not going to be as bad. And oh, by the way, there's no, um, you know, there's no over, um, you know, leverage within the broader economy that sort of imminently could bring us down. Um, I think there's a problem on the on corporation balance sheets that at some point will lead to um, a crowding out effect in terms of their ability to access financing. But it's not going to push us imminently into a disastrous recession. So it's interesting and it concerns me a little bit for maybe a short term pullback, but it's not something I look at and say, oh, well, yeah, this is the end. Sarah, I think I've been called uh, one of the most unloved podcast hosts. So I, I can relate, actually. <laughs> you have not. But, but I, I'm, By you. I'm nervous. I'm going to change that for <laughs> you. <Mike. laughs> I'm nervous because I, I think I told every everyone on the Trillions podcast to buy the triple levered QQQ. I was joking. <laughs> I was totally happening. joking. Wow, I know. Mike, people, people are taking your advice. I think the timing of, of that really, yeah. really it lines up. up. Exactly. It was like a 4,000% gain in that thing for the decade. Yeah. You know, I mean, don't I, get Mike started I, about leverage product. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't really joking. Look, if you're going to be a bull, be a bull, right? Exactly, all in. <laughs> but uh, John, I wanted to to get back to that valuation idea, uh, especially sort of uh, to tap into your background as a fixed income uh, specialist. There's a re- uh, writer here, Brian Chapada at Bloomberg, and our own Cameron Kreis, who's who's been on the show. They both wrote about this thing called the Sherman ratio today. I don't know if, if you read this, but it's basically this guy at Double Line came up with it. And it's just looking at the the yield of a, of a bond index as a ratio to its duration. And, um, you know, pretty simple way to, to value a, a bond product. And it's, you know, obviously for a lot of asset classes in fixed income right now, it's very low. Yeah. It's obviously very low. What is that, you know, is that just the equivalent of a PE being very high in the stock market, it, it could it could go lower, but it, it's it's definitely a sign of sort of weak returns going forward. So I would go back to the Austrian hundred year bond last year, <laughs> which I remember there was a there, I think that I was be, a one of our craziest things. It for, was. <laughs> I, I want to give credit to Bloomberg, but I, I can't do that definitively because I can't remember who had the report, but there was a picture of a ski jumper. 
right? <laughs> going off a high jump as the bond had sort of hit 80% returns like in us. August yeah. of last yeah. year. So kudos to you if you uh, <laughs> if you were able to do that. But there's a law of diminishing returns, right? And the counter argument to that would be, well, what about negative rates? We could go negative. There's, there's no end in sight. Look at Switzerland. Um, but there is a law of diminishing returns in terms of what is the role of that bond in your portfolio? Is it return? Is it stability? Is it some combination of the two? And I still think there's a stabilizing role for high quality core bonds to play in your portfolio, but the return role has been almost completely taken out the window. The Barclays Ag last year generated a return of over 8%. You basically got almost five years of return in one year. So, you know, there'll be one-offs like that, but for the most part, you're going to be looking at half a percent, one percent, one and a half percent, just given the simple fact that you buy a bond today at one and a half percent and hold it for 10 years, you're getting one and a half percent, assuming it's a 10-year bond. It's really, really simple math. So the Sherman ratio and things like that, I think, are interesting ways to think about the market as a proxy for, you know, are they rich relative to, say, equities? But um, bonds are rich across the board, right? And so it becomes a differentiating game, like how do I get my stability, how do I get my income, and just rethinking the way you're building your portfolio. Right, right. I'm going to coin a new ratio. We'll call it the Vildana ratio. What's that going to be? It's the number of crazy things that <laughs> Vildana saw in the market compared to the rest of us. It's very I high. Very What's the ticker for that? Did you come with <laughs> Yeah, I did. Uh, Vildana, cra- C-V-T-H. <laughs> That'll be that ticker. Right. But I, I come with multiple just in case one of you already has. Oh, now, now I'm worried. I only brought one. Redundancy. I only brought one too, so someone else has. All right, well, John, we'll let you start then so that Vildana doesn't steal yours. No, go with Vildana. It's like, bring it on. She's got experience here. Yeah. I, I would say this one's very obvious, but it's the Carlos Ghosn saga. Oh, yeah. It is insane. Yeah. It is totally insane. Him giving the press conference for two and a half hours. He was so animated. He really came out to defend himself. And if you read some of the reports about what actually happened of him sneaking out of Japan, That's hiding awesome. in a box, getting on a plane. There was one report I read where he actually was in the same hotel that Shinzo Abe then checked into an hour later or so. So there were lots of weird coincidences and it's just the craziest story. It seems like someone's got to make a movie eventually about that. What's the title of that movie? Uh, gone baby. Gone, gone. Gone in sixty gone, seconds. Gone, gone. gone in sixty <laughs> seconds. That's good. I, th- I think Prince Harry and Carlos and gone. Prince Prince <laughs> Harry and Meghan might need to bring him in as a consultant to get get themselves out of Britain because it, <laughs> it doesn't sound like they're they, they're gonna... they're trying with what's called now Megxit. Megxit. Oh <laughs> my god. Megxit. Well, Donna, I'll give you uh, high points for crazy, low points in the. It is kind of obvious. It uh, is obvious. Yeah, yes, but so that's that, that's all right though. Sarah, can you beat uh, the Carlos Ghosn saga? All right. I've got to say mine's a little bit obvious, too. Um, So it came on Thursday, early in the morning, not too early. Um, President Trump loves to tweet, uh, but he tweeted. And I'm going to read you the original tweet before we did eventually get a correction. Um, But it said, in all caps, stock market at all time high. How are your 409Ks doing? (laughs) 70%, 80%, 90% up. No caps anymore. Only 50% up. What are you doing wrong? And obviously, okay, typo, 409K. But I found it very interesting that he was saying, oh, your 401K right, right. is only 70, 80, 90% up. Five, what five are you doing wrong? The 409K. I guess that's like the, the triple levered. He's got the triple is. levered 401K. Yeah, that's I think. the secret that's, here. 
which uh, come to think of it, maybe that's my million dollar idea there. The, the triple levered uh, 1203. <laughs> Mike, your demise. Mike, you're just going to cause more inflows <laughs> to triple levered funds. I don't, I don't know if we need this right now. 3x plural. And, okay. All right, John, pretty stiff competition here. You, uh, you got anything that can oh, compare man. with these two? I'm just, I'm shaking my head because those are two really good ones. <laughs> the 409k one especially. Anyway. Uh, so I'll go back to the markets, right? Brent and WTI below the levels they were last Friday morning before Soleimani was killed is an amazement to me given yeah. what's happened over the last week. So that's my crazy thing of the week. What does that tell you? I mean, I constantly see research notes when there's events like this sort. And we saw it a couple of months ago after the drone strikes on some Saudi oil facilities, the idea that there needs to be a risk premia then baked into oil. So oil prices should therefore be higher. So then after an event like this, that oil prices are lower. I mean, what? How is that possible? It's, I don't know. It, it, I, I struggle to make sense of it. I mean, I think there's, we could have a very long argument about the long-term headwinds to the price of oil, given people shift to alternative forms of energy and obviously the U.S.'s rise and more supply in the market and how inefficient and, you know, dysfunctional OPEC is as a organization. Um, but in that short period of time, you would think that the, if you read all the experts in the Middle East, the response for Iran is, you know, um, close the Strait of Hormuz, right? Take a, you know, um, you know, take pot shots at oil tankers and things like that. Yeah. Go back at Saudi Arabia, do another drone strike. So it was pretty shocking to me that oil, it wasn't surprising that it came back on Wednesday mm-hmm. after Trump made his press briefing, but the fact that it went all the way back below um, last Thursday night, early Friday morning, is a bit of a shocker. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. You'd think there'd be still some risk premium built yeah. in there somewhere. Do we have any points for that one, Mike? Oh, no, that's good. Oh, Definitely yeah. get points. Appreciate it. That's, yeah. that's good. <laughs> All right, I, I'll give you mine. I think I win again. I always win these uh, things. No, it's, you, know, you can't usually... award yourself a win every <laughs> yeah. single time. <laughs> All right, well, I'll let you guys award me the win after you hear mine. Fine. My, the craziest it. thing I saw in markets this week, now, Voldana's probably going to call me on this uh, because it actually happened in 1790, the year 1790, so not technically this week, but it was in Jason Zweig's this You're day. Qualified. No, no, it was in Jason Zweig's this day in financial history for January 9th. Uh, and I saw it in Matt Levine's column. So shout out, shout out to him. He's he's like the vice uh, chairman of crazy things. He's a great compiler. He's, yeah, of crazy he is a great things. thing. But here, I'll just read it to you. Now, this remember, this is January 9th, 1790. Insider trading gets off to a roaring start as Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton submits to Congress his report on the public credit, which proposes buying up distressed bonds to consolidate the national debt. U.S. and state bonds, which had been trading at a fraction of their value, immediately surge in price. In one of the earliest and most shocking cases of insider trading on record, several members of Congress hire sailboats and stagecoaches to take them south faster than the news can travel by foot. They can then snap up bonds at bargain prices before Southern newspapers spread the news of Hamilton's proposals. I love this story for two for two reasons. Um, because nothing's changed, right? Yeah. Uh, here we are. It's uh, 230 years later. And what are we talking about? The, We're still the... taking stagecoaches. <laughs> 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 well, if you've ridden Jersey Transit, you would. You would uh, it's basically. Yes, it's basically would, uh, stagecoach. No, but here, what's, what's driving the markets? It's uh, the Fed buying bonds, not the Treasury, but the Fed buying bonds. And this whole issue of, I, don't, I disagree with him that it was insider trading. 
the news was public. They just were had low latency trading to beat the news down to the to the southern markets, I think. It's shocking to me that a headline in 1790 would have the words insider trading in it. I don't know. I when I think of before 1800, I think of it yeah. as a simpler, yeah. quieter. Maybe it actually wasn't, obviously, but I don't, I don't think, know. I actually, it's surprising. I, I think that's his editorializing calling it insider okay. trading. Like I said, it's it's low. This these are these were the flash boys of 1790. Is the way I look at Some it. Some serious stuff. It's low latency, you know. And it's like the, the um, and Levine made this point in the column, it's like the, the guys who got in trouble for the Bank of England audio feed. Did you see that? They had a faster audio feed from the Bank of England uh, press conferences. and so They could trade on it. Yeah, so they could trade on it. So Pretty crazy stuff. I like the Flash Boys analogy. Yeah, no, that's Flash a good Boys one. of 1790, yeah. which is, yeah. that could also be a book title. Yeah. We have Carlos gone, um, and then... Flash Boys of 1790. Yeah. There you go. We've got ourselves a, a hit. A, a lot of value add from this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, with that, I think we have to leave it there, though. So John Mackay, Vildana Hyrick, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Regan Anonymous. Our guest, Vildana Hyrick, is at Vildana Hyrick. And John Mackay is at John underscore Mackay1. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And don't forget, you can give us a call on our Bloomberg Podcast hotline. That number is 646 324 3490. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges and edited by Jarrell Dillard. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.